It is indeed code blue. We continue our look into the crisis in our healthcare system each week for for five weeks in total. This is week number three. Last week, we spoke to the new president of the Canadian Medical Association. Today, we have another very distinguished guest I'm looking forward to speaking to. Tonight, the always thorny issue of what role private delivery of healthcare could play in helping ease the burden on the system as a whole, with Canada's healthcare system in crisis, as described by many frontline workers these days, there is a renewed push by many, but we've heard it, of course, towards leaning on private facilities to ease some of the pressure on public hospitals. It is always controversial. Here are advocates on both sides of the argument from a recent Global News piece. The promise was that we would have a universal system where everyone was treated, but people are dying on wait lists. We've got the solutions of the public sector, but when people don't hear about them, if you don't know what's on the menu, you can't ask for it. But maybe the paradigm is wrong here. Maybe it isn't public versus private. The fact is, and I always have to be reminded of this, 30% of our health care is already paid for in what would be called private insurance and out-of-pocket payments. In Canada, 70% of healthcare is publicly paid for through your dollars, my dollars, taxpayers' dollars in general. Uh, the other 30%, you think about pharmaceuticals, you think about eye exams, you think about chiropractors, all that stuff, um, physiotherapy, a lot of it is covered, it's not covered uh, by public health insurance. So we already have a bit of a hybrid system. Um, what's really this is about is about not providing two-tiered coverage, not allowing one group to have beneficial coverage over someone else because they can pay for it. Although in some ways that already exists too. So how much of a role could private delivery of healthcare make in this province? How much of a change could it make? Um, We thought we'd invite Dr. Jane Philpott to come help us out with this one. She, of course, is the Dean of Health Sciences and Director of the School of Medicine at Queen's University in Kingston and the former Federal Health Minister. Dr. Philpott, thank you for your time. Welcome to the show. Happy to be with you. So uh, just Really, out of curiosity, what do you make of of the last of the crisis, as we're calling it these days, and and what we're seeing in the healthcare system right now? Well, there's no question that this period of uh, emerging from the pandemic has been uh, an extremely challenging time. Uh, We still have significant uh, shortages of human resources. We've always been short uh, some health human resources, but that's been exacerbated by things like burnout and people leaving the profession. It's obviously made worse by the fact that we still have health professionals who are getting COVID or needing to isolate. So uh, I think it's put an enormous amount of stress on the front lines, lots and lots of backlog to deal with. So not a big surprise perhaps, but uh, we've certainly reached a point where uh, I am hearing from my colleagues, health professionals, uh, that this is, you know, the 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 worst they felt in terms of their level of optimism about uh, about health system recovery for for a very long time. Yeah, and that can't be a good thing because often we rely on the optimism of healthcare professionals to carry us through these these really tough times, right? Are you hearing any of the? I mean, I know it's tough, and there's no magic wand, but are you hearing anything along the lines of the kinds of ideas and solutions you'd be hoping to hear right now? Well, that's the good news is that there actually are some really good solutions. So uh, I think people tend to get wrapped up in despair and, you know, it's never getting better and nothing's improving. But in fact, there are some great solutions. We're hearing lots of talk about team-based care, which is absolutely a big piece of how we're going to do better. Um, That makes me happy because here at Queen's Health Sciences, we have uh, three schools, medicine, nursing, rehabilitation therapy. So we 
see healthcare as a team sport. Um, and uh, really part of the solution is making sure that people work to the best scope of practice and uh, that they, they we delegate across that entire team. That's a big part of the solution that we haven't done as well as we could in the past. The other um, solution I'd love to share a little bit about is just a a new and improved focus on primary care or the first person that you're going to get care from. That's been a big challenge. I'm a family doctor myself. uh, And so I know that there's a real stress on the system, lots of um, challenges in people getting access to a family doctor. We here at Queens and in the Kingston and Frontenac, Lennox and Addington area are looking at uh, some potential new models for how we deliver primary care, uh, focusing on access, trying to offload hospitals, because we know for sure that countries and regions that have strong systems of primary care get the best health outcomes at the lowest cost in a way that's accessible and, and fair. What might that look like? Because I know, obviously, I'm out in Victoria. There's a huge family physician shortage here. Uh, I think this is a story we're hearing from many other places across the country. But what might a different approach look like? Um, and, and why is it cause for optimism, do you think? Well, you know, they always say that you should never let a good crisis go to waste. And so I think that there's an openness in people's minds about how this could be done differently. So we're looking here uh, at, at Queen's University in collaboration with partners, including the city of Kingston and our local hospitals, etc., at opening a, a new kind of uh, primary care clinic that is very much team-based, just in the way that I described. Because, you know, the old model of the family doctor that worked by themselves with a receptionist or a couple of docs and their receptionists is, is really a very outdated model, it's inefficient, and it doesn't provide the best access to care. So uh, one of the new uh, clinics that we hope to open in the coming months will be really highly integrated with the hospital and with specialists, but will be focused uh, on an interdisciplinary team so that a person would come and be part of this, what we're calling a health home, a primary care health home. And depending on what they're coming with, that would determine which health professional might see them. And so many Many times family doctors are doing things that a nurse practitioner, a physician assistant, an occupational therapist, uh, or a dietitian might be actually better suited to be able to provide that care. We've done a bit of that across the country and certainly here in Ontario, but we haven't taken it to the to the level where that is the norm and where we find that there is a, a, a geographic commitment to making sure that everyone in our community has access to a health home like that. Because I gather one of the issues has always been, and you would know this obviously better than better than most, that it, it is sort of the fractured nature of the system because of the different patchwork of systems across the country. You talked about it when it came to, to um, digital health as well, that here's another system where we just don't know enough about about what's out there. You know, we probably know more about baseball hitters uh, than we do about our own healthcare system at times. Uh, I guess that also needs to be improved. It certainly needs to be improved. It's actually one of the things that we have done quite poorly in Canada, I would argue. Uh, Now, thankfully, again, through the pandemic, there has been much greater emphasis on how can we get our house in order as it relates to health data and digital health. Um, There's been work on this in a pan-Canadian context. I've been particularly involved here in Ontario with something called the Ontario Health Data Council, and we've prepared uh, a report to go to the new health minister that talks about what an integrated person-centered digital health system will look like, making sure that we have interoperability standards so that people don't have this 
tremendous frustration of having to repeat their story over and over again or get tests done over and over again, or the fact that people sometimes show up and there is missing information, which is actually quite dangerous when you think about it. So we absolutely have to do better. Hopefully our governments will put the pieces in place and make the necessary regulatory changes uh, to, to, to make that interoperability the norm as opposed to being an, uh, an, an option. It should be data sharing by default. And uh, I think that this is, again, the time when we're in a, in a crisis situation where every penny counts to be as efficient as we possibly can be uh, and to make sure that if you've got a test done in the system, that every future health professional, uh, if you give them uh, access to be able to, to look at your health record, should be able to see that. Ideally, one person, one health record is the way to go. Yeah. Why hasn't that been done? Just out of, I mean, it, it doesn't. I know lots of places are, are playing catch up at this, but I think there's a great example in, one of, in a report that you just wrote the forward for about Estonia and how quickly they've moved, obviously a smaller country. Um, but why haven't we been a bit, a bit quicker to seize on the importance of, of data sharing and, and streamlining that stuff? Well, there there are a whole list of reasons why we might have ended up like this. As you said, you know, Estonia has not only the advantage of a smaller country, but it doesn't have the federated model of health that we have here, where we've got, uh, of course, the federal government and then uh, uh, then thirteen other jurisdictions that have a role to play in health. So that's has not necessarily helped us in this world. When we first sort of entered the world of digital health, and I remember, you know, twenty years ago when we were first starting to get elected electronic medical records in, in family medicine, we had a choice of 25 different vendors that we could go to. Um, some jurisdictions were much more directive in, so, in suggesting that there had to be certain options. And over that last 20 years, uh, governments have been increasingly more directive about defining the, the kinds of vendors that should be used. But we've never successfully been able to say, you cannot use uh, that a, a vendor or provider of electronic medical records unless it is compatible uh, between the family doctor's office uh, and the hospital, for example. And so I think we're going to need to have some strong political will to be able to to put, put those kinds of requirements in place. This is, at the end of the day, often publicly funded uh, and, and supported. And so uh, it's certainly um, something that, that there should be much more control over. The, the public versus public versus private. You see, I've done it all already by, by making it you know either or, just by the way I phrase that. The idea of private and public in this country is always a controversial one. It always comes up when we're in the midst of these crises. And yet there, there must be room for, for some delivery done differently, at least looking at things a bit differently. How do you see that whole debate evolving? Well, as you suggested, it, it's a complex debate, and it tends to be one of these sort of red herring issues that sends people off in an ideological direction that they don't even want to talk about it, and they have their ideas made up, when in fact, actually, very few people really understand uh, the context of what we're talking about. So you know, public and private can refer to a number of different things, including who pays for the access to healthcare or who delivers the access to healthcare. And the reality is that we have all kinds of private pay in the system, and we also have all kinds of private delivery in the system. And then even within private, of course, in terms of the delivery, there can be private for-profit healthcare delivery, and there can be many uh, great models of private not-for-profit delivery. So what people get, I think, um, defensive about is the fact that we are very proud of our 
uh, Canada Health Act, which uh, I also agree is a fantastic act. It's uh, uh, perhaps could be improved on in a number of ways, but what we we have as a solid foundation of a Canadian value is that people should have access to care based on their medical need and not based on their ability to pay. Essentially, we don't believe that people should jump the queue because they have more funds available, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the queue that they're jumping might not be into a private care deliverer, even if it's a public funded. So the best example is many, many family doctors are private entities. uh, And in fact, they are private for-profit entities because the doctor at the end of the day takes home an income from that. However, uh, it can be privately delivered, but it is publicly funded. So if it's a medically necessary procedure or medically necessary visit to a doctor or to a hospital, that should be publicly paid for. And that's the part that people do get uh, anxious about having said that about uh, while well, about 70 percent of, uh, of healthcare in the country is publicly paid for about 30 percent is not it's privately paid for in part because the canada health act doesn't cover a whole range of things including things like most dental care for example some parts of pharma- uh, uh, pharmaceutical care uh, lots of other ancillary services like physiotherapy for example are often privately paid because they're not covered under the canada health act so it's a more complex debate than most people realize, and I encourage people not to necessarily jump to conclusions. Uh, we need as much as possible to make sure people are getting care based on their medical need. Do you see a room? I mean, again, I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that we look to the South, right? We look to the States, and, and we see that as being what private healthcare looks like. And you're right, I was surprised once again to be reminded that 30% of our healthcare, whether it be pharmaceuticals, eye care, physiotherapy, and all those things, is private in this country. We do have a lot of private delivery in this country uh, of healthcare. When, when this debate comes up again, though, when you see I, you know, people talking about innovative solutions and so on, is, is there fear at all of, of a creep here in terms of how much private healthcare we, we tolerate in this country? Do you think the Canada Health Act is clear, crystal clear enough that we're not going to see the kind of two-tier system that people worry about and you were describing? Well, I do think we need to rigidly support how the um, the extent to which the Canada Health Act is in place and make sure that again people get that access to care and that that it is not uh, people are not cared for based on who can pay. That's a fundamental tenant. But you're right; there are lots of pieces within the health system that aren't paid for uh, in, within public funds, and and there is inequity in those systems. You, there are some people who can get access to physiotherapy, and some people cannot for a whole bunch of reasons. That's unfair. It would be great if we had a, a broadening of the Canada Health Act in terms of the kinds of care and the locations of care that are covered uh, through public funds. But you're right, people do look to to the U.S. as an example. Um, And what the U.S. system shows us is that you can spend a lot of money per capita on healthcare and get really rotten results. And so that is not the country that we want to compare ourselves to. Uh, We do know, however, that even though uh, we're in better shape than the U.S., we are not necessarily the best healthcare system in the world. There are lots of other countries that pay less than we do per capita but get better health health outcomes for it. And so we need to be looking particularly to some European models uh, that do much better than how Canada is doing. Yeah, and, and there is, uh, I mean, we don't want to cherry pick from each of them because obviously the national circumstances are different in countries like the Netherlands or in Germany. Uh, but there are obviously ways that they function that we could look to in terms of trying to allow some uh 
private, at least private delivery, not uh, not necessarily queue jumping. So there are all kinds of things that we can learn from other countries. Again, what I would really point to is who is really focused on primary care, who's focused on making sure that we move upstream as much as possible to invest in places, to, ways to keep people healthy. Uh, the biggest uh, spenders of our healthcare dollar are hospitals, physicians, and pharmaceuticals. Um, and we know that countries that, can, that get the best bang for your buck have often much stronger systems of primary care, where, for example, uh, some countries have a guaranteed access to a family doctor, uh, which uh, is something that I think that we should and could aspire to here in Canada to say that when you move to, an, to a particular community, you know that you will have access uh, to a primary care home. Uh, it would take, again, an enormous amount of political will. I believe it's absolutely possible. And the more that you can deal with problems before they uh, get uh, more advanced or that you can do preventative care and screening of, of patients for particular conditions, the more affordable your health system is. Dr. Philpott, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me.